The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. As we've been covering the recent issues around wildlife crime and changing regulations facing our environment and endangered species across the globe, we have focused recently on the latest news from South Africa and the legalizing of trade in rhino horn. Rhino horn and ivory sales, with the scale of poaching in recent years, People often vilify Asia as the culprit of all things wildlife crime. To bring light to these voices, today my guests are Peter Knights, Executive Director of WildAid, and along with him we have Hong Huang, Representative WildAid Vietnam, and Alex Hofford, Representative of WildAid Hong Kong. And this is in an effort to better understand what trade in rhino horn and in ivory would mean on the ground in Asia, and also to discuss China's commitments to close down the ivory markets by the end of 2017. So we've got a lot to cover today, so we're going to just jump right in. So I'd like to welcome Peter, Alex, and Hong, and perhaps each of you could give us just a brief little bit of background on how you fit into this picture in our conversation today. Uh, Peter, let's start with you. Thank you. Yes, um, I originally started working on uh, environmental issues as an investigator for the Undercover undercover Environmental Investigation Agency. And uh, we were doing investigations into rhino horn trade, ivory trade, wild bird trade, um, really looking how these processes worked, looking how the abuses happened to the regulations. And um, since then, we've developed this model of uh, education and awareness for Asia. Um, starting first in places like Hong Kong and Singapore, and now more recently in places like China and Vietnam, where we've been working with a lot of local icons and celebrities using advertising techniques to try and persuade people not to buy endangered species products and explaining to them why they shouldn't buy endangered species products. And it's now the largest uh, program of its type in the world, um, spanning uh, 10 countries and uh, featuring hundreds of millions of dollars worth of free media space, more than 200 celebrities um, going out across Asia primarily. Excellent. And for our listeners, just in case you missed it a few weeks ago, we did play an, a previous episode where Peter was our guest, and you can get a lot of background uh, from Peter about him 
and uh, the beginnings of Wild Aid and a fuller picture of what he just explained to us. So what we're hoping today is so much has happened since that conversation a couple of years ago. Wild Aid has grown, has taken off tremendously, and then also there was the CITES-COP17 meeting of which Peter was at and Vietnam was represented and so was Hong Kong. So um, we would like to bring all of this together. So next, Hong, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Hong. So I'm based in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Um, my environmental uh, passion started some like 20 years ago with some crazy climate change and, uh, and environmental protection program I was involved in. But my true passion for the wildlife started when I started to work for WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, uh, in 2002. And then uh, I worked there for seven years, totally uh, falling in love and feeling like so much pain seeing so much wildlife being killed and consumed in Vietnam illegally. Uh, and when uh, I moved to Ho Chi Minh City in 2009, um, I left WWF and then I, I thought to myself, hey, I have to do something on my own. And then I started to, I st- uh, found um, my own uh, NGO called Change. And uh, so in 2013, Change started to partner with White Ape. We were very lucky to have found White Ape because we had so much common in, in, in interest in um, and we have been partnering since then, and we are working right now, working on the rhino and the pangolin, and we soon be launching our ivory program uh, in the next couple of months. Excellent, excellent. So now we have Alex Hofford, and he is in Hong Kong. So we are literally crossing the globe today. Hello, Alex. Hi there. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, my background in Hong Kong is um, in photojournalism. Um, when I first came to Hong Kong, I was um, working in, in the media. As first, my right back, I was a commercial photographer, and then I moved into editorial, and then more like editorial photography with a conservation bent to it. Um, and I was living in the um, area of Hong Kong where, uh, where they call it Shark Fin Alley. So I was walking out of my front door every day and just seeing all the, the shark fins in my face and started documenting that um, and just building up a bit of a photo library of, of, of stuff to do with shark fin but it, that's basically how it grew from from that and then uh, you know the more you take pictures of this stuff and then you get start, you know get, uh, explore the story behind it and um, you know working with some NGOs and even we set up our own NGO and then I find that our, our um, objectives quite aligned with Wild Aid, and so working with Wild Aid, I guess, in a sort of ad hoc basis to begin with, and, and then in more of a formal way since the beginning of 2014, when around that time was when we started to um, to, to work on the ivory trade, because at that time there was no one really doing it at all, and so I just started switching focus from. Um, taking pictures of, of, of sharks to, to documenting um, elephant trade in Hong Kong. Um, it, was a, it was a gap that needed to be filled, and, and so that's how I, how I began. 
Well, excellent. Thank you. And a lot has changed in those mm. few years in terms of the ivory trade and even um, shark finning due to a lot of wild AIDS campaigns. Let's start with rhino and South Africa's decision to legalize the domestic trade in rhino horn. So um, from what I understand, there are not a lot of parameters yet set into rule or law on how this is going to work other than per, per person, two horns can be exported per year, per year for personal use. And um, But as far as I'm aware, and correct me if I'm wrong, CITES banned the trade in rhino horn. So South Africa doesn't use rhino horn unless they use it in um, Muti, the the local um, medicine market. So how is this going to work? Peter, let's start with you. You were at CITES, and yep. I'm not sure if Hong and Alex were both at CITES. But Alex, was. From, yes, I was. Okay, great. So we had a team there as well. So that's that's six months ago. Things have really gone off the rails since then. So, Peter, help us understand this a little bit, how this legally yeah. can work. Well, first to say that the whole thing is a bit of a mess from the start because the reason the moratorium was originally overturned was not because um, the courts found there was anything wrong with the rhino horn ban. What they found was that the government agency had not posted the rhino ban for comment properly so this was a procedural mistake which has led to this um when you look at the track record of the south african government in managing this it's it's very tragic i think is the only word um the rhino horn trade really started going again i think off the back of something called pseudo hunting where um People from Vietnam and Thailand, uh, organized criminals in some case, were going to South Africa and legally hunting rhinos, supposedly for trophy hunting, but actually commercializing them and selling the horns, which is illegal under CITES um, and was illegal under South African law, but nobody was checking. This happened 400 times before they closed it down. So when South Africa talks about a regulated trade in rhino horn, I think the big concern is that the regulations will be not enforced, um, that uh, it's just reopening of trade without really any restrictions, ultimately. So you, um, uh, and l- let me interject yeah. one second. So we're aware of the pseudo-hunts and, and where yeah. most of the horn was going. Will this spike an increase in poaching until this gets settled? Well, we don't know. I last heard that the last full moon was a very bad full moon. This is the first full moon after the announcement. And full moon is when most of the poaching goes on because the poachers can see using the light of the moon. So it seems like it might already have gone back up again um, as a result of this. But I don't think from what we've heard so far that either South Africa or China will allow these rhino horns in legally. But of course, um, you know, it doesn't mean to say they won't be smuggled back and people will have permits and try and get their way through. So the danger is that uh, rather than flooding the market of rhino horn, that it actually stimulates the market for rhino horn, as we saw with the ivory trade, because exactly the same arguments were applied to the ivory trade. If we sell it, uh, the illegal trade will go down, uh, price will go down, and the exact opposite happened. The price skyrocketed, the poaching went up. And I think that's the concern that this will now happen with the rhinos. And with the rhinos, we simply don't have enough rhinos left to play with. Like, uh, Right, unless you sort of factor in the breeders. 
and I think this is where most of the problem began, and, and it was the Rhino, Associ- Rhino Breeders Association, a small group of them, not all of them, plus um, John Hume, who is one of the largest rhino breeders in South Africa, and a couple of others who have very large herds. We're talking hundreds of animals, and they have been caching rhino horn from their dehorning projects for many years so there is a lot of money sitting in vaults in south africa that is not only a security problem but a potential high value market so this is where it seems to me the sticky wicket comes in there's a huge potential value here and now maybe we can bring in alex and hong what is since CITES, Vietnam was at CITES and said they don't want rhino horn. How is Vietnam going to deal with this possible black market influx? Yeah, well, I, when I heard, when we heard this news, we were like in the office, we literally like, oh my God, this is killing us because it has been already very difficult for us to do all this awareness raising. Um, and people always say, hey, it's, uh, it's okay, it's uh, South African rhinos, why you care? Um, and we always bring up like this is the issues of like, yeah, international crimes, this is illegal, it's internationally banned and everything. And then now they say, hey, see, even South Africa, they are selling it, uh, it's legal now. For us, it will really pose a big, really much bigger challenge for, for our um, campaigning efforts. Uh, we did respond to, on that. Um, our other one of the NGOs here in Vietnam launched a petition uh, against this. Uh, against this, uh, and we mobilized a lot of celebrities, and we got some like ten thousand. They got some ten thousand uh, signatures, and we tried hard to raise the issue that okay, this is gonna create so much more. Uh, problems for law enforcement here in the country because now we, we cannot know which one is legal and which one is illegal, and so uh, for us it's it's really a big um, threat to our work. So this leads me to a question: How do you tell legal rhino horn from illegal rhino horn? Uh, we cannot anyway. But now the the criminals and the users, the the what you know, the users, they are the top powerful people. So they say, oh, this is legal because this is legally hunted in South Africa. So they have another another reason, good reason for them to consume. But because it's very interesting in Vietnam, um, our new penal code, they give uh, penalties and they punish only the traders, the, the traffickers, but not the users. So they all, the users would say, hey, this is legal uh, and we are consuming a legal product. On the whole, we have a pretty good idea who the criminal gangs are. And I, I'm not sure which one of you wants to address the answer to this question. If we know who they are, why are they not being prosecuted? They're wealthy. From what I understand, rhino horn is used as a status symbol and they prefer it wild. And that's why it's usually with part of the rhino's face hacked off, leaving the rhino dead or alive. It's also used as a, a gift. And this brings in the question that people say it is a traditional medicinal. Well, in our, our last episode with Peter, the use of rhino horn went way, way down back when it was banned. So now it has a possibility to upsurge. So if we know who the people are that are using it, and this is we're going to talk about this for a little bit. How do we 
address the high-end users and do the campaigns work? I think uh, Hong can speak to the latest results from Vietnam, but the yeah. current situation we've uh, we've seen is that the price of rhino horn is now less than 50% of what it was a couple of years ago. So there's definitely been some impacts. And the other thing I would say is that the criminal gangs are not just in Asia. There are criminal gangs in South Africa, in Mozambique, including high-level officials that are involved in this. And those are going to be some of the people who are so, you know, presiding over this new system. Um, Hong, can you tell us some of the results we've had recently in Vietnam? So we did uh, a survey in 2014, uh, and then we did another survey, the same one, in 2016, so three years after we were running the campaign. And obviously, we had very positive uh, the results. So the belief in the medical efficacy of rhino horn dropped by 67% between 2014 and 2016, from 69% to just 23%. And before, 34.5% um, people believed that rhino horn killed cancer and now only 9.4% res um, responded that they believed that it kill, can kill cancer. So, I think that our campaign did work and we, we were confident that our message did go to those people because, um, of course, we cannot say that we're uh, sending the message directly to them, we go, but we say that to doctors, we, we use religious leaders who those people believe in. So I'm just going to say, yes, our campaign worked, although it's not directly. Thank you. Excellent answer. And um, boy, that first section went really fast, so we need to step away for a little break. Stick with us because a lot is coming up. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. 
Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World with my guests Wild Aid, Peter Knights, Alex Hofford, and Hong Huang. So, um, and the, so we're bringing in the United States, we're bringing in Vietnam, and we're bringing in China. When we talk about stopping wild, illegal wildlife crime, the language we use to talk about wildlife is a commodity type language. The value of the horn, the value of the ivory, the value of the shark fin on the market, whether the legal market or the black market. So this has a tendency in my mind, I think, and for a lot of our listeners to put together in their visual landscape the real animal in its landscape where it lives versus a bunch of pieces parts out in an alley like shark fin alley as alex mentioned so um how do your campaigns and i'd like each of you to address this from your perspectives how do we reconnect the aesthetic and the role that wildlife plays in its habitat on ecosystem earth to address the, the illegal crime of selling it in pieces and that value system. Alex, how about well, you, um, since you yeah. look at it every day? Effectively, what, what happens is that um, in Hong Kong, there's quite sort of low um, awareness and there's a disconnect between, like you say, between a, a piece of ivory and an elephant. A lot of people, um, you know, they're, they're not aware that... Uh, that ivory comes from elephants. Even there's there's this huge disconnect, and that's something that we're we're trying to um, to to fill that void. Um, but what, when people are actually presented with, a, with with a picture of a beautiful elephant, and then a, you see the the gory stuff as well, people do um, generally uh, make that connection. If people are ignorant, uh, they you know it's just usually just through lack of awareness. But once you present them with the facts, um, a lot of people I think are inherently good. And uh, they wake up and they, they, they're rational and they see this, this, there's a problem and they go, okay, well, you know, that, that's really awful. You know, the, um, the sharks, they need to, they have their fins chopped off the back of the shark and it's really cruel. And, and they say, okay, I'm not going to um, have shark fin anymore and I'm not going to buy ivory. So it's just a question of um, connecting the two and making people understand it. And then uh, generally people make the right choices, I think. So, so it's not... Actually, I said I said the word ignorance. It's not really um, ignorance. It's just a lack of awareness, and so that's what we're trying to do. So, Peter, Wild Aid has been doing these campaigns for quite some time with a lot of success, and you said you use a lot of icons. We could use the word celebrity, but I think that has a different meaning in Asia than it does here. Are the people, let's say the poor person who is using rhino horn to cure a headache, it's very expensive. How do they afford it? And does the campaign reach these communities? It's expensive if you buy a whole rhino horn. It's not necessarily expensive to buy a few doses. Um, you know, so the per gram price is not actually 
uh, unaffordable to many middle class people. So that's part of the problem is that more and more people now can afford it. But as Alex alluded to there, we have seen massive changes in awareness. And so, for example, in Hong Kong now, I mean, the ivory, they can't sell the ivory to Hong Kong Chinese because they don't want to buy it. They've been selling to mainland Chinese where there's been less education. Um, and similarly, in Vietnam, education efforts really only started in 2013, 2014, seriously on any kind of scale. And the public reaction has been very, very positive. Um, uh, you'll never persuade the sellers, um, uh, the traders, that it isn't a commodity, but you can persuade the consumers. And uh, that's the danger with now them legalizing rhino horn traders. Once again, it becomes a commodity and the public will not distinguish between legal and illegal uh, rhino horn. Um, you know, we think of things here, illegal cigarettes, for example, somebody hasn't paid the duty. So you've cheated the government of tax. That's about it. The trouble with illegal rhino horn is you have poached that rhino. You've caused that rhino to be poached. And there's no way to distinguish it. Consumers are not that discerning. And so the danger is it's going to stimulate the market again. Uh, at a time when we made considerable progress, the price has dropped, the awareness is up, the Vietnamese government is finally getting its act together on uh, arresting people and illegal trade. And now we're going to throw that all away and go back to a, a very messy situation. Well, hopefully we won't be throwing it all away because, it, you know, from here in the U.S. with our current administration and the destruction of our federal systems and the EPA and U.S. Fish and Wildlife and environmental laws, what we are seeing is the public is rising up and speaking up and resisting and becoming very active in saying, no, we're not going to allow this to happen. So my high hopes are that the campaigns that Wild Aid has worked so tirelessly on across Asia, wherever Wild Aid works, that it is now up to the people. And Hong, from what I'm hearing, that what you talk when with your campaigns and the various efforts that you're doing combined with what you're doing with climate change that you are reaching people so what are you hearing on the ground when um or are you any any of you when asia vietnam and hong kong heard about this new regulation that south africa's legalizing trade what did what are you hearing as a groundswell movement on the ground in both Hong Kong and Vietnam? Um, well, from our side, I, I think uh, rhino horn isn't such an issue in Hong Kong as it is in places like Vietnam. It's more like a, it's more of a transit place. It, um, it's not so much a consumption place. So we're not really working so much on rhino horn. So I'd, I'd probably uh, defer to Hong on that one. Okay, we'll get back with Alex because um, we're going to talk more about. Uh, the ivory trade and China's commitments to that. So, Hong and Peter, if you could address that, please. Okay, so I think that uh, I really agree that uh, Vietnam is probably the top consumer of rhino horn because uh, every single person I talk to, they know someone who is using rhino horn. So the thing is because it's part of the culture, it's the history and a lot of other things. Um, the Vietnamese people really believe in rumors. And you know about all these problems uh, just started when there were rumors like a few years back about some uh, government leaders who's using it and curing guns cancer. And without any scientific evidence, people just believed in that rumor and then it spread out and become this crisis. And the thing is, when we talk about commodity or not, like they don't really, they don't relate. Uh, on one side, they don't relate uh, this 
piece of horn with like a, a giant beautiful animal living in the wild. The first thing is because, as you say, very low awareness level. On the second, on the second hand, even if they know, they probably they don't care that much because um, one of the main users uh, in Vietnam um, are the ones who are using it for cancer. And when they are having cancer, uh, the family is so desperate, so they would just use, they just would, would do anything to to save their family members. And when we come to say, hey, it's a beautiful giant, beautiful animal, and they say, who cares? My mother is dying. And so with that, uh, so there are a lot of users. One uses for the, the cancer, one is just for the hangover, who are just basically the rich people who just like use it for the hangover. Um, and the young, the, the, the poor people who have cancer, they even have to go and borrow money from the bank or they go borrow money from relatives to buy uh, rhino horns and when their relatives die, they go bankrupt. So it's, it's a lot of sad stories around this. So, so but because there are so many different purposes of using this, this rhino horn, so our campaign targets and ha- carries different messages. I'm sorry. So we're dealing with two very different populations, those who are sure. desperate and those yep. who have far more than they need and are using it for status. So yep. um, one you can sort of understand. The other is this move in lately for high consumption of everything just because you can afford it. So I guess this, this brought a question to my mind. What will legalization of rhino horn and export for personal use from South Africa, if and when this all gets sorted out, how will that affect the prices in mm-hmm. Vietnam? If there is a Peter, will there be a yeah. legal market or will it still be illegal? Well, I think it'll still be illegal to import it into Vietnam um, because the Vietnamese won't give CITES permits. But you'll be able to, you know, ironically, you'll be able to legally take it out of South Africa, but you won't be able to take it anywhere else in the world. Um, Legally is the weird thing because they basically what they've done is they've dodged CITES. They've gone through the back door and dodged around CITES, the South African government, because they knew if they proposed it to CITES, it would have been rejected. Um, So I think that's the legal status right now. The prices, it's quite hard. I mean, the prices have been going down dramatically. Um, recently, last week, I saw a video in, in China. Someone was offering rhino horn for $27,000 a kilo, which is still a lot of money. But the prices people have been quoting are 65000 So just the danger here is from the education point of view is we now have a very messy, confused message, um, almost at the point when we were really seeing some real success and progress. So if it follows the pattern of the ivory trade, the price will go up back up again which would be a bad thing for sure um it could go down if uh, they flood it temporarily i mean what can happen is that you temporarily flood the market the price goes down and then when that stockpile goes away it could go back up again so i don't think anyone knows really at this point but it's not just about the price it's also about the quantity on sale and what may happen is the price goes down but the quantity um, being consumed goes up considerably that more people enter the market and in the short term you know it could be fine but the concern is in the long term once that stockpile is sold uh, then after that you've only got wild rhinos left to supply it and we could be in real trouble and of course 
The money is going to people who primarily don't really conserve rhinos. They preserve rhinos. They have rhino farming effectively, which is not animals in the wild in a, in a natural ecosystem. It's not with their natural horns. They've been cut off and they're basically being farmed like cattle. I've no doubt we can farm rhino like cattle to the future, no matter what happens. What we can't necessarily do is have wild rhinos in wild ecosystems playing the role they're supposed to. And that's what conservation is about, not not keeping them in a... In a farmyard basically excellent point really excellent point thank you for bringing that up because what this does is put this potential value into the hands of a few people and this alludes to something peter i know you want to talk about where the money ends up going potential value in small hand hands of caches of rhino c-a-c-h-e of um stock rhino dehorning projects and it floods or slowly secretes into a market the money gained by south africa from this trade do you think it will really help conservation it will help preservation it'll definitely help the private rhino owners that sell the rhino horns my concern is that the government agencies are going to have even more of a poaching crisis on their hands and to be absolutely honest in south africa money shortage for the government hasn't been a problem they've been very well funded in the last few years the problem has been corruption the problem has been the inability to prosecute anybody above poacher level Uh, None of this changes any of that, of course. Um, And that's been the real problem. It hasn't been a lack of money on the ground. It's been a lack of political will to prosecute people, to take out corrupt officials. That's been the problem on the South African end. And at the Asian end, the problem has been that, you know, mixed message, that confused message. And this message just confuses it further. Now it's, is it legal? Is it illegal? Is it moral? Is it immoral? It's all very messy. And I think uh, the concern is that just leads to a growth of the market, an expansion of the market. People who are stopping rhino horn go, well, now I can do it again. Um, and even people going like, well, if it's legal, then it must cure cancer because why would they legalize if it doesn't really work? So that, that's the concern. It reminds me a lot of what happened when, with the two one-off sales um, that happened previously with ivory. Um, and it, I can sort of see things happening that way going that way again and in the end the ones who lose are the rhino and the pressure is really now on the small rhino private reserves of people who have rhino but not uh for breeding purposes for sale breeding purposes purposes to conserve and preserve the rhino and for ecotourism and photographic safaris so now they have to compete with the same costs increased costs of security and um, poaching and protecting their herds in in the same landscape of people who have a lot of money uh, dumped into preserving, as you said, the the species is industrialized. I can tell you that nobody really wants to take a photograph of a rhino with no horn. Yes. It's a pretty sad sight. And, yeah. and so for so tourism, it's definitely not a good thing. In the national parks, they don't really want to dehorn their rhinos for those reasons. It's expensive and it, aesthetically it's not pleasing. And so on the one hand, you've got that market, which I think is a much bigger and more lucrative market in the long term. On the other hand, you've got people like John who you know has a thousand rhinos basically in a field, takes all the horns off farms them like cows um you know that's that's what he sees as the future for rhinos and i think if that's it then conservation is lost um and as i said i've no doubt if we just want to farm rhinos we can farm them in you know in, in australia we can farm them in texas we can farm them wherever we want in good security we can farm rhinos 
I think most people in conservation want to see winos in the wild with their horns, fulfilling their role in ecosystems. And that's probably not compatible with any kind of trade in rhino horn. I agree with you. So once again, we've got two sides of a very sticky, sticky coin. So stick with us. We have to step away for a short break, but we're going to find what some solutions Wild Aid is putting into place to address this new uh, wrinkle in uh, rhino horn trade. So we'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The Wild Effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Streaming live the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my guests Peter Knights, Hong Huang, and Alex Hofford. And we've been discussing the recent change in the rhino horn trade status. And we also want to discuss and bring back in ivory as we have uh, Hong Kong on the line here. And we have Vietnam and we have Peter. And this is what Wild Aid is very much focused on, along with all the other endangered illegal wildlife trafficking in a variety of species. So let's slide over to ivory for a little while. We understand that China has committed to shut down its um, consumer market in ivory by the end of 2017. That leads me to a quick question. What about private use versus the public use of markets and is it happening why don't we start with you peter well yes it's uh, what they're talking about doing is uh, closing down the legal sales of ivory and yes it absolutely is happening they've already closed down a number of shops and carving factories uh in china 
and the price is going down correspondingly. So it's about stopping the sales. Um, and this was the really the thing that stimulated the last ivory crisis was the opening of these markets within China. And uh, it now seems that the indications are as it closes down. So the price is going down. And certainly um, in places like Kenya, where they do have uh, reported data, it does seem like the poaching has gone down since 2011, around 350 to 400 uh, elephants being poached down to, I think, 65 up to November last year. So it looks like things are moving in the right direction. The seizures of ivory going into China are down by 80 percent last year, which is obviously a huge, uh, huge improvement. So uh, better, better news for elephants and rhinos at this point in time. Well, that that's good news. And then once again, CITES did uh, negate any further conversation on any mechanisms to trade in ivory. So that basically halted that conversation. So you can listen to some of our other episodes to understand how that went into effect. Um, Peter, you did mention one thing during the break that I do want to talk about while we're segueing between rhino and uh, ivory. Um, there were, there have been a lot of seizures of rhino horn and ivory. So this is picking up. So on the global law enforcement side, we are seeing more seizures. Unfortunately, it's after the animals are dead or have been poached. So um, Hong, perhaps you could uh, speak to some of what's happening on the seizure side in Vietnam. Um, So uh, I think actually uh, we have been quite happy recently when there were, I think the government is taking up another step on uh, law enforcement because for years we were a little kind of like hopeless with like why there haven't been any prosecution and seizures but in just uh, in October and November last year like 2016 alone there were like five seizures already there were like at least like 500 kilograms or 600 kilograms in each and so we can see that definitely I don't know if it will be like the Vietnamese people who will use all this ivory or just go back up to to China, but at least we are a big hub of trafficking uh, ivory through Vietnam. And there have been um, public, um, you know, there's a market near Hanoi selling all this publicly to Chinese tourists. So definitely there's a big market in Vietnam for ivory. So what is law enforcement doing to step up the the seizures and, and... where it enters into the country has since CITES and in what is Vietnam doing to step up its law enforcement side? I think it was just by, uh, because in November there was a big international conference on wildlife trade organized in Hanoi. Um, over 50 countries attended that conference and I think around that I think the government wanted to show to the international community that hey we are we are being serious about it and so there were a lot of seizures around that time and I was hoping that it would not just stop there with just the conference because after that I think there were one or two more seizures um, and then the government um, burned the stockpile which took us like years to convince them to burn the stockpile and they say no and then around that conference they burned the stockpile so I think the government well at least now they 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 thought that they have had to be serious about this because the only international community is speaking up 
is a pressure from the international community and NGOs like that, like us. So do you think um, it's only it's because time. do you think it's only because of international pressure, finger pointing, or is it truly a ground, groundswell movement within Vietnam to to stop this and find I alternatives? Totally combined, I think so. Mm-hmm. Because of course we have been doing all this for years. Um, but, and it's just adding up, adding up until we had that international conference and they say, well, the pressure is big enough and then they had to take action. And they, and for years they didn't respond much to us, but then after that, now we are kind of cooperating them right now. Actually, White A Vietnam is working with the Vietnam Customs to produce, detect manual and uh, producing, uh, sorry, organizing workshops, training for law enforcement officers. So, they started to listen to us, and that's a great sign. So there's a lot of good news out there. So um, Alex and Peter, let's move over to you and the ivory trade in China and Hong Kong and, and this commitment to end the commercial trade. Well, yeah, China has made that commitment very strongly, and it's already put it into action. As I said, in the first three months, they closed down exactly as they said they would do. Um, so it's definitely moving forward in China. Uh, Alex can tell a bit more. The Hong Kong situation is not quite as rosy, but Alex can explain that to us. Yeah, well, on, on the prices, um, like Pete mentioned, the, the, the good news is that um, the price of ivory has, uh, um, has dropped dramatically since its peak in 2014 which when it was at $2,100 a kilo and then to 2015 as $1,100 a kilo and then uh, the lowest I think we'd ever got it to was about $680 a kilo last year but and now it's bounced back up a little bit to $730 US a kilo is the, the current price so it's, it's pretty, pretty, much, pretty low compared to what it was and that's uh, as a result of all the the bans and um, you know the, the actions around the world. There's a lot of commitment at the highest level. At least there was with uh, Barack Obama and Xi Jinping. And um, in Hong Kong, we've been riding on the back of that really, and um, just uh, bashing the government and to to, to follow uh, the international trend, as they call it here. Hong Kong likes to follow; they don't like to lead. Um, and so, um, you know, our campaign here was pretty much centered around, uh, you know, kids protest outside stores selling ivory, um, um, investigations, that kind of thing, um, just to sort of expose all the, the laundering and the loopholes and the abuses that have been going on since here, since effectively since 1989. Um, even, even, you know, I've been digging out some old Hansard reports in the British Parliament where the MPs at the time were just saying that. Um, you know, they couldn't trust the word of the Hong Kong authorities. I think there have been massive abuses and corruption and, and neglect um, at that time and, and nobody really paying much attention to what was going on on the ivory trade until basically until 2015, which is when we came out with our report. Since that time, the government really woke up. They were, you know, they, in 2015 was the... The, the crunch year when they went from total denial and saying everything was fine, it was all strictly regulated and licensed and everything was no problem, to saying they were open-minded to um, January 2016 when our leader in Hong Kong um, put it into the policy address and lo and behold, you know, um, a year later, now we've got a, a bill on the table of the legislature and so we're, we're, we've, we've gone full circle from bashing the hell out of the government to them being our, our, our friend and ally and we're supporting the government and what, what, what they're doing and now our 
chief enemy are some of the more um, entrenched pro-trade legislators in 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 Hong Kong's um, legislative council, which is, I guess, like your Congress, isn't it, in in the U.S. Um, so we've switched focus again to to um, to these um, bad guys in the legislature. Uh, but overall, we think we're we're in good shape with the the amount of um, lawmakers that are going to support the ban when it comes to it. It's just that. They, some of them might try to throw rocks into the machinery to delay it, to slow it down, to you know, to game the system, so to speak. Um, but if all goes well, we're looking at the legislators voting on it in um, March 2018, and hopefully uh, by June 2018, the 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 pre-convention ivory imports and exports will be stopped completely. And that will give Hong Kong's enforcement, the uh, law enforcement um, agencies, the the chance to to really crack down. And um, even, even though people talk about five years uh, being too long, the the, the, main, the most important part is step two of the ban. There's three steps, and step two is is the pre-convention, which is the the loophole that the trade has been abusing for so long since 1989. Well, these are. Tremendous shifts for the positive. I'm hoping my listeners are understanding that Asia is not our enemy. We do have to work with the countries that are using the wildlife in in terms of the demand side, and that's what Wild Aid has been working on. So we do have some monkey wrenches thrown into the works here. This leads us to, because so much has shifted since Peter and I last spoke, and just in the last six months with CITES, and even with the U.S. admin and our recent um, announcement from Trump of wanting to change the ivory, the elephant act here. Peter, uh, what do you think will happen with that if he tries to open that up and legalize trade of ivory here in the U.S.? Well, I think he's going to face uh, an awful lot of opposition. Um, you know, the uh, I think the interest from the Trump administration. And let's just just let's be fair here. They have they issued a, a presidential executive order uh, about trafficking, and they talked about human trafficking, drug trafficking, and wildlife trafficking. So they still remain committed to stopping illegal wildlife trade. And that whether this is from the administration or I understand it's from a congressman that has put forward for loosening the ivory restrictions. Um, it's a proposal right now. It's got a long, long way to go. Um, I think uh, most people are not necessarily opposed to very limited exceptions for antiques, etc. The, the main thing is that it can't be a loophole which you can drive a truck through. So, um, you know, it's got a long, long way to go. It's going to face a lot of opposition if it really does open up ivory trade in any big way. Um, and so I, I, I'm fairly optimistic that that can be stopped as a problem here in the United States. This puts a whole new angle of pressure and need for Wild Aid to step up campaigns on all fronts. What are some of the changes and how are you going to address these changes in, in rules and law? 
Well, I mean, the ivory trade, we are still, uh, you know, a lot of people sort of packed up and gone home with the ban. We're not. We're going to stick out and keep trying to educate people on why the ban is necessary and why it needs to be supported in China and Hong Kong. We're taking the ivory campaign to Vietnam because what has happened is as China's cracked down, uh, wildlife trade always flows to the weakest links. And so now, uh, some, as Hong was saying, uh, Chinese are going to Vietnam to buy their illegal ivory to smuggle back. And we're going to be working in Vietnam to try and stop that, encourage the government to track down on track down on that. Um, and then, uh, you know, on the rhino horn, we obviously got to keep our efforts up in China and Vietnam, but we're also working in South Africa to try and put pressure on the government there not to let this be a free-for-all. And also to expose some of the, the corruption and lack of prosecution that's been going on in South Africa. Um, so we're doing a, a campaign there with black South Africans uh, called Poaching Steals from Us All. Um, we'll be doubling down on that. And, you know, we didn't really mention pangolins today, but there was very good news for pangolins at CITES. And our pangolin campaign is really uh, getting going in Vietnam and in China. We've just done a great PSA with Jackie Chan on pangolins. And so there's plenty for us to do for sure. And thank you for mentioning the pangolins. And I do want to mention, please visit Wild Aid's website at wildaid.org. They have their PSAs, which are fabulous. And please watch those. Please share those. Check out their Facebook pages. And um, look up Hong Huang and uh, look up Alex Hofford. And you can see a lot of his stunning images. And uh, what Wild Aid has been doing, they've done an incredible amount of work in a very short time, all things considered, when you consider how long conservation is going on. But we are reaching the tipping point where the the wildlife in place in situ where it lives is at a critical point of will it survive and can it survive for the next five ten years while we really as the public citizens of planet earth really speak up to our governments and say this has to stop what is your next steps Hong, why don't you talk about the ivory campaign in Vietnam? Very soon we will be launching our um, uh, ivory, ivory campaign and we have been very lucky because elephant is such an adorable animal and a lot of big time celebrities want to join us. So we're going to send two um, celebrities to Kenya very soon to do PSAs and they will do documentaries on ivory. Um, they are one of them is Miss Universe Vietnam 2015 and the other one is the the, the runner up. And those beautiful uh, girls will just go there and talk all about elephant and then just bring back the messages and send the message to their millions fans out there. And the thing is, we because. Ivory is such a, a beautiful, easy thing to talk about because the elephant itself is already a great animal to talk about. So we are going to launch the campaign um, in, uh, I don't know, mid, around July. And the media is already uh, very interested, show really a lot of interest. And VTV, the national te television, shows the interest to publish any talk show or any shows, any, any documentaries that we're producing on elephant. And a lot of other um, media provide totally free space on out-of-home media or magazines and, and TV um, to providing us all the, the, the space. So we're very lucky with that. And I hope that with the new penal code that they're going to introduce also around July with the increased penalty on uh, traffickers and traders, 
won't be able to bring down the the illegal consumption. Not um, just not not just ivory, but also rhino horns and pangolins. That's excellent, and that reminds me that uh, China did allow into its film fest uh, the film uh, Ivory Game. So we've done a lot of films starting way back with Vanity Fair, Blood Ivory, and Ivory and Agony. So a lot of this campaigning has worked, and China has opened it up, as Alex said, a much more open mind to allow. Uh, for public uh, viewing the film Ivory Game, which is an important film. They're all important films. Any last uh, additions you would like to add? Uh, just to say that, you know, we've seen massive price drops in shark fin, rhino, rhino horn, elephant ivory, um, and it's not all bad news, but this is uh, an ongoing battle, and saving endangered species, unfortunately, doesn't go away. Um well, it's just talking about the um, U.S.-China relations and how um, la- uh, was it last week the um, you know the two presidents, President Xi Jinping and Donald Trump, met in in Florida. They had the the summit, the first meeting with Trump and and Xi. And I, I was quite um, encouraged to, to read the the reports um, in the South China Morning Post here, uh, written by a local reporter who noted that that U.S. Strategic and economic dialogue, which is something that was set up between Xi Jinping and Barack Obama, apparently that's still going. That's still going on. They've changed the name of it to high-level dialogue. They've dropped the strategic and economic bit. Um, and so, as far as we know, the, the combating wildlife trafficking um, section is still in there. It hasn't been dropped out. The, the only thing they've, they've changed in the whole thing is they've moved um, cyber crime into sort of under national security or something they've tampered with that bit but the the combating wildlife crime um, element is still in there so um i don't i don't really see trump rolling back too much of, of this stuff because you know like it he wants to compete with china as well and so i would imagine that that the the, the bands on both sides of the pacific are are pretty safe for now. Wouldn't you agree, Pete? I mean, did you notice that? Yeah, look, I mean, one of the issues that Trump became president on was border security, and this is a border security issue. So um, I think uh, it'll be more positive than some people are thinking. That's an excellent point. Thank you so much for bringing that up. And just one last word, probably, please don't think that we are enemy. We are Asian, yes, of course, but here in Vietnam and Hong Kong and everywhere, we are doing our best to reduce all these crazy illegal consumption of wildlife. So we are your friends. <laughs> Thank you for that, because it is one planet. You know, we've divided it up into nations yeah. and cultures and different sets of laws, but when it comes down to it, we're all part of the same thing. So it really is going to require us, the public, you, my listeners, to reach out and let's find ways to cooperate with each other and stop pointing fingers at just Asia as the bad guy because it is not and as Peter had said earlier what we need to do is fight corruption and enhance law enforcement and enhance laws so it really is up to activism and taking action and put your money and your efforts where your mouth is so um, unfortunately we're out of time Peter Alex Hong thank you so much for taking the time thank you thanks Ellie This is Ellie Weiss, and you're listening to Our Wild World, and my guests Peter Knights, Alex Hofford, and Hong Wing. Thank you very much. Thank you again for joining us this week. 
Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 